0: Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message well hello christ community church thank you for joining us for our summer road trip uh with me and the other campus pastors uh it's it's about to get weirder so stay tuned for uh, upcoming weeks Um, i was not planning on being up here this week Uh, we were actually going to have a guest speaker some someone some of you uh know and love Shadonke johnson our uh, ministry partner from Sierra Leone, and uh, earlier this week, we found out that his visa process was delayed, and so he wasn't able to make it uh, in time to be here this weekend. So uh, as we uh, pray, I'm going to pray for him and his ministry, um, and hopefully sometime, you know, not too far from now, we'll be able to have him in because he's always a blessing to our church. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we're, we're so thankful that you are a sovereign God, that you've got the plans in your hand and you know exactly who you want, where you want, and why. And so God, we pray for Shadanke. we pray for his wife, Santa, we pray for uh, their ministry. And we pray that this change of plans would not throw anything off for their family or for the work that you have them doing. God, we pray that you would bless them and their ministry, not just in Sierra Leone, but in the countries around them that you would empower them. They're doing incredible things to meet tangible needs, to lead people to you, to plant churches, to uh, build up your kingdom. And we are so excited to partner with them. And we pray that you would continue to use them in amazing ways. We, We pray that you would even bring something good and unexpected out of this change of plans that you've got in mind. God, we pray now as we open up your word that you would be at work in us. We know that it's only by your Holy Spirit that we can understand your word and apply it and live it out in our lives. And so we pray that you would work here and now to change us as we read. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this summer we're in a series as a church called Road Trip, and we are looking at the New Testament book of Acts. And the reason we're doing that is because it syncs up with where our church wide Bible reading plan is over the summer. So in July and August, we're reading through the book of Acts, and we're also preaching through the book of Acts. And we're doing that because we we think that if we do it together, you'll get both more out of both the reading and the preaching, and uh, we'll we'll grow as a church as we do that. We do this every once in a while as we go throughout the year. But even if you are not following along in the Bible-savvy plan, the book of Acts is an incredible book to study. It is the story of the early church. It's the first history we have of the Christian movement, and it tells how the movement began as this huddled group of scared people in a, a room in Jerusalem And it exploded across the known world until in cities across the Roman Empire, there were little communities of Jesus followers just tearing up the place. This is the story of how the the gospel, the message of Jesus, went on a road trip from city to city and turned the world upside down. That's very exciting. So far, though, we have just been in one city. The last two weeks, we've been telling stories in Jerusalem. But this week, the story expands to a city just north of Jerusalem called Damascus. Damascus was then and is now in the country of Syria, and it is the location of one of the most famous life transformations in all of history, something we call the conversion of the apostle Paul. Paul also was known by the name Saul. He's a man of two cultures, so he's a man of two names. Uh, Saul was his Jewish name, so when he's in a Jewish context, that's the name that he typically used. Uh, Paul was a Roman name, and so when he was in a more Gentile context, that's the name he typically used. So sometimes I'm going to say Saul, sometimes I'm going to say Paul as we tell his story. But we're going to be looking at his story in Acts chapter 9. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 9. And before I actually uh, dig into the story, I want to tell you what the story means. I'm just going to give you the big idea up front because it's a very simple idea, and I want you to have it in mind as we read, that it's a profound one that has implications if it's actually true. Anyone can change. Anyone can change. Now, I know that some of you hear that and you think, well, that just sounds like a cheesy platitude. Like, yeah, anybody can change. Or like some motivational speaker kind of you know, thing. But I actually think it's true. It's true. And some of you would say you believe it, but I don't actually think you believe it. I don't actually think you believe it because I think that when you look at the people around you, you don't think that they will ever change. That jerk at the office is always going to be a jerk. Your sister is always going to be closed off to you. It's always been that way. It always will be that way. Your husband is always going to be hostile to your faith. You don't see that changing. And we just resign ourselves to the fact that, you know, people don't really change all that much and it's always going to be this way. I'm going to just have to deal with it. I also don't think you believe you can change. Many of you think I'm just, this is just the way I am. I'm always going to be this way. There's no hope for me. I, I just am this way. But today, as we read the story of Saul, what we're gonna see is that Saul was the least likely candidate for transformation. He's at the bottom of the list. He was dead set against Jesus, dead set against Jesus' people. If anybody should have been written off as a lost cause, Saul should have been. But the point of the story is if even Saul can change, anybody can change. That, That is actually the lesson that Saul took from this story himself. When he was reflecting on this years later, this is what he wrote. He said, Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. He's saying, here's something that I really think is true. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example to those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. This is the lesson Paul took from his experience. If God can change me, the worst of sinners, then anyone can change. Anyone. And Saul built the rest of his life on that premise. Let's actually dig into the story now. Acts chapter 9. We're going to just kind of walk through the story paragraph by paragraph and see what it means. To help us kind of organize the story, I've split it up into three scenes. Uh, Scene 1 involves just Saul on his own. Scene two involves a man named Ananias. Well, I'll explain who he is in a minute. And scene three is the two of them together. So let's start reading scene one, Saul, Saul. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, which is just another name for the Christian movement, Whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, this is not the first time in the book of Acts that we run into Saul. It's the first time we've talked about him here, but earlier, just a few chapters earlier, he is in Jerusalem terrorizing followers of Jesus. If you turn back just a a page from this story, you've got this story of a man named Stephen, and Stephen was a leader in the early church. Uh, Stephen's job was actually to be in charge of the distribution of food to people who didn't have food, to widows, to orphans, and so on in their community. And the reason Stephen was put in charge of that that distribution was because he was supposed to make sure there was no racial or cultural bias as they were giving out the the, uh, things that people needed. Stephen was actually from a minority cultural group within the church. And because they had been neglected, the apostle said, well, why don't you take responsibility for this and you have control of it. So you make sure it gets distributed fairly and justly. And so that's why Stephen was in charge, but it was more than just kind of an organizational role for him. Stephen was an incredible public speaker, bold and persuasive. And he would be out in the streets of Jerusalem, talking to people about Jesus and people would, would come to faith. And this drove the religious leaders in Jerusalem crazy because they're trying to stamp out this movement. And Stephen is making their job so much harder. So they plot against him and they decide they're going to arrest him. They're going to charge him with a crime and they're actually going to execute him. And so at his execution, Stephen gives a speech. And this is what happens after that. After Stephen spoke, they covered their ears And yelled at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Same thing that Jesus prayed when he was on the cross. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep and Saul approved of their killing him. The reason I highlight this is because Stephen does something really incredible here. The very people that are murdering him, as he's lying there on the ground being stoned to death, he looks up and he sees a man named Saul and he prays that God would not hold this sin against him. And I actually think that the story we're looking at today is an answer to that prayer that Stephen prayed for Saul and the result is Acts chapter 9. So after Stephen's death, the Christian movement, it, it, the people are scared and they start to scatter out of Jerusalem. Because if people are getting killed, it is not a safe place to be. And at first this looks like a setback, but it actually turns out to be a step forward. Because now people are going into all these surrounding communities and they're talking about Jesus. And one of the cities that people go to is Damascus. And so now this little group of followers has sprung up there and Saul, who is busy hunting down Christians, realizes I got to go there. This is like an invasive species and I got to pull it out by the roots. So he's headed to Damascus and he's going to hunt down the believers there. Now, when we hear this, it's easy to just think Saul is an evil man. And what he was doing was evil, but we got to pump the brakes just a little bit and ask the question, why was paul saul so committed to doing this because when we think well saul was a murderer we put him in the category of like ted bundy and john wayne gacy those are what we think of as murderers these are people who are uh, psychopaths they're social deviants they they just delight in the killing that's why they were doing it but saul was not like them saul was a respected member of his community Uh, He was a a deeply moral person. Uh, He was someone who was uh, committed to following God. He was not crazy. In fact, the people around him looked at what he was doing and and looked on with admiration. So why was he doing this? It's because Saul knew his Old Testament history. He knew the story of Israel that every time that they got involved in idolatry, it went terrible for them. It was awful. And all of the heroes of the stories are the people who opposed the idolatry, who drove it out of the community. It's, it's Moses and Elijah and Josiah and all of these people. And he says, I want to be like them. I don't want us to go down this path. This would be a terrible path. And God would, would judge us for this. So when he sees people saying, you know who we think God is? This human being over here. We're going to worship this flesh and blood man as if he were God. That's idolatry, pure and simple. And he says, I got to stamp that out. That's not going to go well for us. And he does this through legal means. The, he's got the highest authorities behind him. He goes to the high priest himself, the very top guy in, in Judaism at the time, and he gets a warrant from him. And so now he's going to Damascus. And probably a modern analogy to this would be if the FBI authorized you to go hunt down terrorist cells in the U.S., Saul is going on an official order to hunt down people who are destabilizing their community and are a threat to their well being. This is a noble crusade that he is on, or at least he thinks so. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, put yourself in Saul's sandals here. What would this have been like? I'm guessing that at first, this would have felt like a dream come true to Saul. I mean, he's a devout Jew, and now the heavens are opening up, the the light of God is shining, he's hearing God's voice. I mean, he's probably thinking, this is it. I've got all these heroes from the Old Testament who who are doing what I was doing, hunting down idolatry, and now I'm being rewarded for my faithfulness by hearing from God himself, just like they did. But then he hears, why are you persecuting me? Whoa, 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 wait, who'd you say was calling? Who is this? This is Jesus you are persecuting. Now, I I struggled to find an analogy that would actually express the confusion he probably felt when this happened. But maybe this will work. It's sort of like if at some point Darth Vader, go with me. Darth Vader takes off the mask and behind the mask is Yoda. <laughs> like you, all of a sudden you're confused. You're like, wait, 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 wait. I thought you were the bad guy. I thought, I thought you were the good guy. Wait, who, who's bad? Who's good? What is going on here? See, in, in Saul's mind, Jesus is the villain. His followers are the evil empire. These are the bad guys that we're hunting down. And now the guy in heaven says, I'm Jesus. So what does that mean for Saul. It means for Saul, he is actually the villain. He's the bad guy. This God that he thought he was uh, fighting for turns out to be a God he was fighting against. He's on the wrong side. Now, most of us, we are used to seeing ourselves as the good guy in situations. We we always interpret our actions, our attitudes in the, the best light we can. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. But there are moments in life They're very precious moments when we get a different perspective on our lives and we see things and say, "Mm, maybe I'm not as great of a person as I I thought I was. Maybe the reason there's always drama among my friends is not them, it's me. Maybe I'm not as good of a friend as I thought I was. Or maybe the reason my kid is always so stressed out is because of the pressure I'm putting on him. And maybe it's not because I care so much about his success and his future, but maybe it's because I care so much about my ego. Or maybe I, I'm not quite as tolerant and, you know, laid back as a person as I think I am because I'm always replaying arguments in my head and I always win in those. And, and, and I, I, I keep a list of wrongs in my mind. I, I know every time someone offends me and I don't forget. Or or maybe my life isn't under control so much as I thought. Maybe maybe I actually am an addict. This is a place we've all got to get to at some point in our lives. The place where we say, I got to have an honest assessment of who I am. You got to ask the question, what if I'm wrong? What if I'm the part of the problem? What if I'm the bad guy in this story? And that's what's happening to Saul here. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. Jesus says to Saul, Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and didn't eat or drink anything. Those three days must have been intense for Saul. He's rethinking everything that he knows, who God is, who he is, his past, his future. And he doesn't know what's going to happen next. But most of us, we avoid those kind of moments. We, we don't ask those kind of questions because we don't want our world to be rocked. But sometimes having your world rocked is the best thing that can happen to you. So Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been in these sorts of moments where your world has fallen apart, where, where your sin has been exposed, where you came to the end of yourself and you could not do anything more. And, and before that happened, you would have said, that is the most terrifying thought in my life, that that would happen to me. But now that it has happened, you'd say, I never go back to before. That there's even something about that season that you missed. There, there's something about it that there was so clear. There's so much clarity about what was going on. There, there was even a sense of, of freedom sense of rest. It's out of my control now. There there was a a strong sense of hope even that that now I can can actually start rebuilding my life on a foundation that's more firm than before. And now you look back and you say, what if I had actually kept going down that path? What would have happened to my life? But what would have actually happened in my eternity? I mean, Saul here, to realize that Jesus is God, it is so much better to realize that Jesus is God now than to realize it when you're standing before him on the last day. Sometimes the best thing that can happen in your life is for your world to be turned completely upside down. Or or maybe I should say, be turned completely upside right. So look at the second scene here. The perspective shifts to this man in Damascus, a man named Ananias, who's a follower of Jesus. And most of us, we, we believe that anyone can change, or we say that, and it sounds like this inspiring thing, change is possible. But when change actually happens in a person's life, It's really, really messy, not just for them, but for everybody around them. Because when you change, all your relationships change too. And people got to adjust to the new you. And that's what's going on here with Ananias. Let's read in verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. Saul. For he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Why does Jesus do it this way? Why couldn't he have just snapped his fingers and restored Saul's sight? You know, He caused the blindness, couldn't he have just taken it away? Why does he need to send someone to pray for him? Two thoughts. First is this. God does not need people to do things for him. He can just do whatever he wants all the time but he wants to have people involved in what he's doing. Uh, God is like the mom who's making cookies and she doesn't need her son to come up and struggle to crack the eggs and have a hard time mixing the flour, but she delights to invite him in. Says, come and join me in what I'm doing because I like it and you'll like it too. It's a privilege and honor to do this together. That's how God is with us. He says, I want you to be involved in what I'm doing in people's lives. But the second more important reason he does this is because he's driving home a very important idea, that salvation is not just vertical, it's also horizontal. Salvation is both vertical and horizontal. So when God saves someone, he restores their vertical relationship with him, that they are forgiven, they are adopted as his child, the Holy Spirit comes into their life, they are reconciled with God. But along with that vertical salvation also comes a reorienting of horizontal relationships. Part of salvation is God puts you into a new set of relationships specifically with the church, the people of God. In other words, the church is not like a bonus. It's not like an add on like, hey, you've got salvation from God. And now, just so you know, there's kind of like this club over here. And if you want to get involved, it's kind of, it's pretty cool. People are into the same things. You might like them. It's not like that. The church is part and parcel. It's an essential part of what salvation is. You receive not just a father, but a family. Not just a king, but a kingdom. God is not just uh, making spare parts. He's building a body. There are no free agent Christians. And being a part of a specific church is part of what it means to follow Jesus. Now, there are seasons for individual Christians when you might end up between churches But we hope that those times are a little bit like a vintage Yoda action figure, both rare and short. Eh? Eh? This is why Jesus sends Ananias to Saul. If Saul's gonna be fully incorporated into what God's doing, he needs to be reconciled both with God and with God's people. Now, of course, that's easier said than done. Uh, Let's look at verse 13 here. Ananias's reaction. He says, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with the authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and to their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much, how much he must suffer for my name. Saul is on the way to arrest Ananias, and Ananias knows it. And I bet you that Ananias had been praying for Saul in those days. But my guess is that his prayers, they came from like the angry Psalms. You know what I'm talking about? Something like this. Rescue me from my enemies, Lord. I hide myself in you. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies. Destroy all my foes, for I am your servant. So Saul is the enemy. He's one of the bad guys, like from the Old Testament. And you don't go and you pray for Pharaoh. You don't show kindness to Goliath. Saul, like what? You want me to go heal this guy? What are you talking about, Jesus? That's crazy. And I don't blame Ananias for it. I mean, he's, he's afraid. He's a dangerous guy. He's probably angry. I mean, Saul's killed people that he knows and loves. But, but I don't think it's just fear and anger that keep Ananias from from enthusiasm here. I also think it's disbelief. I I think he just assumes people like Saul, they don't change. And certainly not like that. I mean, of course, of course, we all believe in the power of Jesus to change people, but you know, some people just make more sense than others. Don't they? Like some people, some people are spiritually curious. So of course, you know, they could find Jesus, maybe somebody who's been diagnosed with an illness or they lost their job, they're desperate. So they're going to call out to God that that makes sense or someone, they got a lot of believers around them who are just loving them. And they just sort of get loved into a relationship with Jesus. That that makes sense. But Saul, like he's not open, he's not in crisis. He hates Christ followers. There's no way he's coming around. People like that just don't change. But what if it's actually true that anyone can change? What if God can reach the last person you thought possible? I think some of the reason we have a hard time with this idea that anyone can change is because of the way we picture God. I think we sometimes think of God, maybe not trying to, but we think of God as sort of passive. Like Jesus did what he needed to do. He died, he rose again, he paid the price, and now he's up in heaven and he's sitting there just kind of waiting to see who's gonna respond. He's gonna see he's put up the sign, he's made the offer, he's gonna see who comes into the shop and sort of takes up his deal. But that is not at all what God is like. God is not a passive God. He's not sitting up there waiting for people to just figure it out. He is actively drawing people to him. Notice in this story how often he's the one who initiates. He's the one who interrupts Saul. He's the one who calls Ananias. He's the one who's directing all of the action. As you read the other stories in this section of Acts, you're going to see it again and again and again. Jesus is the one by his Holy Spirit who's leading the charge. He's got the plan. This is so key. God is the most passionate seeker of people that there is. He loves each and every one of us. And whether you recognize it or not, He is actively at work in your life, drawing you to Himself, pursuing you. This is the reason we believe people can actually change. It's not because we think, you know what, people can just sort of pull themselves up by their bootstraps, they've got the power to change inside them. No, this is not self help, it's not life hacks. The reason anyone can change is because Jesus is not a passive God. Anyone can change because Jesus is a pursuing God. God does not say to people, hey, you better come and find your way to me. He says, no, I'm going to find my way to you. I'm going to chase you down right where you are. He he isn't waiting for the moral elite and the spiritually enlightened to just figure him out. He is chasing down the rebels and the rogues and the hard-hearted and the hard-headed and people like me who most of the time just don't give a rip about important things. There's this old poem called The Hound of Heaven. Uh, It's got a bunch of funky language, so it's kind of weird to read, but the image is amazing. It compares Jesus to a dog and not a little lap dog who sits at home and waits for someone to pick him up and cuddle with him. It compares Jesus to a bloodhound who has the scent of his prey and over every hill and through every river and to every forest, he goes searching for him until he finds what he's looking for. That's what Jesus is like. Jesus is a pursuing God. There are a lot of you here who have people in your life that for years you have been wanting to come to faith in Jesus. I ran into a man who attends our church in Starbucks a a week or so ago, and he was telling me about his wife. That for years he's been following Jesus and she's just not interested, and he doesn't know what's going to change that. But he's been praying for her for years. In my own life, I, I have a sister who I have not seen for five years I have two children she has never met. She doesn't want anything to do with God. She doesn't want anything to do with us. She she is out there. And I have prayed for her every single day. And honestly, after a while, you wonder why you're still praying. Like I've said the same words to God 5,000 times and nothing's happened. So why am I still praying? Because Jesus is a pursuing God. My wife, Michelle, her dad surrendered his life to Christ when he was in his twenties. And when that happened, he looked around him and he realized there was a whole bunch of people he knew that did not have a relationship with God and he wanted them to know God. And so he made this list, a list of 40 people. Cause he's like, well, that's like a big round biblical number. So I'll just pick 40 people. He said, I'm going to pray for each one of those people every single day. One of the people on that list was his sister. Now his sister was a great person she lived a good life she was a pretty moral person she was pretty successful she had this mentor a businessman who kind of took her under his wing and as he started different companies he kind of taught her the ropes and before long she had a pretty good position in his company and she was making a good living living a good life and was feeling good about things and so when michelle's dad would come to her and talk about jesus she'd say i'm just not interested Not because she was hostile. She just didn't feel the need. Like, things were going well. Why do I need to ask God for help for anything? I'm fine. For 25 years, Michelle's dad kept praying for her and the other people on the list, and nothing happened. Nothing changed. Until one day, this mentor of hers had a heart attack. He had several surgeries after this, and as he was going into the third surgery, he said to her, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And he didn't. And this threw her for a loop. He had been like a father figure to her. And now all of a sudden, she is thinking for the first time in her life about the big questions. She's wondering what's going on. She tunes in on a radio station. She happens to hear a Christian preacher on the radio station. And so she starts listening to that. And she actually does this sort of thing. It's pre-internet. So she actually ordered what I, I think are called cassette tapes. I'm not really sure how they work. But apparently you can put a sermon on them and somehow listen to it. And she would get these tapes and she would listen to these messages again and again. Try to figure this Jesus thing out. And then one time Michelle's parents were out visiting her and they said, Hey, why don't we bring you to a church that we know out here? It's a good church, a lot like our church here. And uh, she, they brought her there. And on the drive home, she said, you know, I keep hearing these preachers and that guys talk about like a personal relationship with Jesus. Like, what is that? And long story short, eventually she surrenders her life to Christ. And then her husband does. And then her adult children, and their spouses, and her grandchildren. And now that entire family is worshiping in a church, serving, reaching out to other people, all because Michelle's dad prayed for almost three decades without seeing anything happen. That's right, that's right. how do you do that? How do you pray persistently and keep investing in people after years of them not being interested? You have to have a deep belief that God is active, that he is patiently pursuing people, even people we don't think are ever going to come around. I want to plead with you. Do not give up on the people in your life because God is not giving up on them. Anyone can change because Jesus is a pursuing God. Let's keep reading. Let's look at the the final scene in our story here. Verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. The the key word for this scene is brother. 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 Think, think of how hard it would have been for Ananias to say that. that. This man who was coming to kill him, and he says, Brother Saul. Uh, this week, Michelle was brewing a pot of tea, and uh, the tea company wanted to be clever or profound or something, so they put a quote on the tea bag. And when you're trying to scramble to put together a sermon, you'll use anything for an illustration. <laughs> And it had this quote that was attributed to Abraham Lincoln and Abe Lincoln was famous for drawing together his opponents and becoming friends with them. And the quote said this, I destroy my enemy when I make him my friend. I destroy my enemy when I make him my friend. Now I looked this quote up and Abe Lincoln probably did not say this, okay? But it was profound nonetheless, made me think, so good job, orange spice teabag, you did your job. But this is not how we like to think about our enemies, is it? We destroy them. That sounds really great. But friends, you just can't even imagine that. And God actually goes one step further. God destroys our enemies by making them our family, our family. 2006, Galilee Baptist Church was burned to the ground. It was an African-American church in Panola, Alabama, and the arsonists were three white teenagers, at my church that I used to go to, we sent some crews down there to help uh, build, rebuild things, and so I got to know the pastor, a guy named Bob Little. Eventually, they caught the arsonists. All three of them pleaded guilty, and the church was thrilled at this. They, they wanted to see these men come to justice, but they also wanted to walk in the way of Jesus. And so they decided to go to the courts to actually plead with the judges to reduce the, these boys' sentences. The church actually reached out to the families of these young men, and they they said, why don't you come and worship with us? They they started visiting these boys in prison. They would bring them gifts. Individually, members of the congregation would offer their forgiveness to them. And as a result, these three boys surrendered their lives to Christ. When they got out, they were going to have to do community service. And so Pastor Little actually arranged that their community service would be done at his church. And he told me that what excited him most about this, was that when they showed up, they would not show up as enemies. They would show up as brothers. How how do you get to a place like that where you can do that? Pastor Little, he said, this is what made them reach out to them. He said, we asked the age old question, what would Jesus do in this situation? And he said, we thought about what Jesus did for us when we were his enemies how he reached out to us and he pursued us and he forgave us and he sacrificed for us to love us and bring us in. And he said, if Jesus can do that for us, we can do that for these young men. If God is a pursuing God, anyone can change, even your enemy. Now, I do wanna make one thing really clear. When God changes someone who has been your enemy, that does not mean they have immediately earned your trust. I say this especially for those of you who are in abusive relationships. There are lots of times where people will say, I've changed, I'm different, and it may be true. But still, there needs to be time to see the change being played out in their life. This was true with Saul. If you read the the stories that come after this, uh, the the believers in Damascus and Jerusalem, they've gotta watch Saul for a while to see if this is really a, a true, genuine change before they're comfortable fully welcoming him in all the way this is a good thing showing forgiveness showing grace does not mean that someone automatically it just goes back to the way things were this is important to keep in mind too if you are the person who has hurt someone you may have changed i've talked with people in our church who say i really messed up in a relationship in my life i i really hurt my family and i know what i did but i also know i've changed and they felt frustrated because they go to their family and their family doesn't see it right away. They they don't believe it, they're slow to trust. And if that's you in that situation, I I wanna tell you, you need to respect the people, especially the people that you've hurt and give them time because they gotta take that time to build the trust. And, And almost certainly it's not gonna go back to the way you imagined it would be before. Anyone can change, but it does take time to build trust. So what happens after Ananias prays for Paul here? Let's look at verse 18. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. People use different terms for this moment in someone's life. Sometimes people call it conversion. Some people call it coming to faith. Some people talk about it as being born again. Around here, we often use the term surrendering to Christ. And this is an essential experience. Jesus actually said, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. You you have to go from resisting God to trusting God, from spiritually dead to spiritually alive, from darkness to light. If you don't do that, you are not a part of God's family and the kingdom of God is closed to you. Now, there there are some of you here who have never done that. You've never surrendered to Christ. And in a moment, I'm gonna give you a chance to do that. But there are a lot of you here who have done that. And you know exactly when that happened. You can name the day, you can name the event. You know the moment in time when you crossed that line. Uh, maybe it was just a month or so ago at uh, Inspiring Stories Weekend with Ketchy, you surrendered to Christ. Or at an Easter or a Christmas Eve service, or maybe uh, at SBR, a student who surrendered their life just in the past month. Uh, others of you, you, you read Saul's story though and you say, man, I, I, that just doesn't look anything like my life. Like there was no dramatic moment like that where everything changed. I mean, I, I love Jesus. I'm pretty sure I know him, but honestly, I cannot tell you when I crossed that line. And you might be wondering, am I, am I missing something? Like, did, did I do something wrong here? I'll tell you this, everybody's experience of conversion is different, but in general, it falls into these two big buckets. Some people experience what Paul did, a dramatic moment where they made a clear decision at a point in time. But other people, it's a little bit more of a gradual process. My family would go on road trips every summer, and one of the things that I loved was sort of celebrating the moment when we crossed into a new state. So my dad would you know, say, hey, we're, we're getting close to the state line, and uh, we'd know when we cross from Colorado into Wyoming, and we'd cheer, and we'd just think this was great. And so we knew the exact moment we crossed from one state to the next. But there were some times when I just wasn't paying attention to where we were on the road, and I'd realize halfway into Utah that we had come into a new state. Now, sometimes this is what it's like for people coming to faith in Jesus. At some point, you cross the line. At some point, I was uh, in Wyoming, and then I was in Utah. There had to have been a point where I went from one place to the next, but I could not tell you exactly where that was. Same is true for some people with Jesus. At some point, you went from death to life, from darkness to light, from rebellion to faith, but it was part of a process. But here's the important thing, whether it was a definitive moment or a process, the important thing is to know where are you right now? If knowing if you have crossed that line is as simple as answering this question. Okay. And I actually want you to answer this question in your mind right now. Why should God accept me? Answer that question for yourself. Why should God accept me? Now, if your answer was something like, God should accept me because Jesus died for my sin and rose again to give me life, then almost certainly you've crossed the line. You you may not know when you cross the line, but if you can say, my hope is in Jesus. He is the one I'm counting on to rescue me. He's the one who did what needed to be done. He's the one I'm trusting with my life and my eternity because he died and rose again. I have hope. If your heart says that, then you're in. Even if you don't know the moment when it happened. But if your answer is something else, like, you know, I think God should accept me because I'm a pretty good person. I I do my best. Or or God should accept me because I I think he just kind of accepts everybody. Or or if it's, I don't know why God should accept me. Or, Or if it's anything that doesn't mention Jesus, you should seriously ask yourself the question, have I understood the good news about Jesus? And have I ever really surrendered to him? Because you might not have. Now, when people surrender to Christ, there's something really important that happens after that. Look again at verse 18. It says, Saul got up and was baptized. And then it says, after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now, notice this. He comes to faith in Jesus and immediately he gets baptized. Even before he gets food. He hasn't eaten for three days and he's like, I'm going to do the baptism thing first. You're going to see this again and again as we read through Acts. Someone comes to faith and immediately they get baptized right away. Now, I don't think this is a rule. I don't think you have to get baptized within minutes of surrendering to Christ. But I do think that there's a point that we need to take to heart. New Christ followers got baptized at their first opportunity to do so. It was the first command they were trying to obey. And there's not a single example in the Bible of someone waiting years after coming to faith to be baptized. In fact, baptism was so early in the process that when the writers of the New Testament letters wrote to churches, they assumed that everybody in the church had been baptized because they couldn't imagine an unbaptized believer. Why was that? Because they knew what baptism symbolized. A baptism is a symbol of everything that happens when you come to faith. It's a symbol of the fact that you are united to Christ, which happens at your conversion. It's a symbol of your death to your old life and birth into a new life, which happens at your conversion. It's a symbol of the washing away of your sin and your guilt, which happens at conversion. It's a symbol of being initiated into a new family, which happens at your conversion. The reason they got baptized right away is because it's a symbol of things that happen at the start of your relationship with Jesus. Baptism is supposed to be sort of like a wedding. It symbolizes the beginning of your commitment. Uh, so many of us are like people who have gone to the courthouse, we've been legally married, and nine years, 14 years later, we decide we're finally gonna have a wedding ceremony. You, you can do that. There's nothing wrong with that, but you might've missed the meaning of the wedding. If you are a believer, if, if you, and you have not been baptized, I would urge you, do so at the, the next opportunity you have. We're gonna have a baptism in the fall, and sign up to do that as, as soon as you can. Now, I wanna wrap up here. And I want to address those of you who have never surrendered your life to Jesus. I don't know why you're here, whether you're here willingly or unwillingly, whether someone dragged you here or not, whether you're a seeker or skeptical, but I can tell you this, I believe that every single person is being pursued by God. God is pursuing you. You might not see all of the details around you, but I guarantee God is looking for you. Uh, He pursued you when he came to earth in the person of Jesus and became a human. He pursued you when he took on the consequences of your sin, all of the death and suffering and guilt and shame, and he went to the cross to pay for it. He pursued you when he came out of the grave offering new life to you. And I believe he's pursuing you here and now. Good news is he doesn't ask you to have everything figured out. He doesn't ask you to get your life cleaned up. He doesn't even ask you to find him. He's looking to find you. All he's asking is this, do you want to be found? If you do, it's time to stop running and actually surrender to him. I'm gonna close in a prayer. And it's a prayer that's gonna express exactly that, the desire to be found by God. And if that's you, you've never done that, please pray with me now. God, I believe that you are pursuing me, that you love me and you want me to be a part of your family. And so God, I say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the things I've done that are against you that I know I shouldn't have done, that do not live up to your standards. I'm sorry for running away from you. I'm sorry for going my way instead of your way. I am wrong and I am sorry. God, I want to say thank you. Thank you that you showed up and you pursued me, that you, you arrived in the person of Jesus, that you chased me down, you went to the cross to pay for my sin, that you rose from the dead so that I could have life. I could not have done it for myself. You rescued me and did what I could not do. Thank you. And God, please, please forgive my sin. God, please transform my life. God, please give me a hope and a future with you. And God, please adopt me into your family as your child. God, I need you. You are my only hope. God, I want to pray for those men and women and students who just prayed that prayer. Who said, I'm in. I want to be found. I surrender to you, Jesus. God, I pray that you would... Fill them with joy at what has just happened, that they have crossed from death into life. God, I pray that you would walk with them, especially in these first moments and days so you get them rooted in a community, to get them rooted in, a, in a, a rhythm of life pursuing you every single day. And God, I pray that you would walk with them faithfully for their whole lives. God, we pray now that as we worship you, that you would be pleased. You are the God who has chased us down because you love us. And we pray this in Jesus' name.